Howard Stern broadcasts on the East Coast, so we're a three-hour time zone away, right? So we're three hours earlier. So at six in the morning, my phone starts ringing. I think the first guy that called was Ken Lane, who's a record guy at Arista, and says, oh my God, uh, Howard Stern's talking about you. I'm like, what? I, I'm waking up. What, what do you mean he's talking about you? He's talking about you. Go, what is he doing? Why, why is he talking about you? He goes, he's ripping you for the Jerry Maguire mix. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. Ken Benson, program director of KKRZ in Portland, Oregon, has had this idea, idea after viewing the movie. And together with his production director, Matt Jones. <laughs> you met those two idiots sitting there? I know it exceeded Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew my dream was going to be a reality. Ben's Town President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio. And all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> I want to welcome a mentor of mine and someone that I met incredibly early uh, in my radio career. I think I was actually probably in radio for less than six months when I first met this man. And when I met him, I was sent to the airport by my boss at the time, Tracy Johnson. I was working in San Diego at KFMB FM, Star 100.7, a hot AC station that I still just recall with such fond memories. And Tracy said, hey, can you go to the uh, airport to pick up Ken Benson? And at that point, whatever Tracy wanted, of course, I was going to go do it. And I said, no problem. This is way before Uber. I guess you could have called a taxi, but I was the taxi. So I go down in my jalopy to go pick up Ken Benson from the airport. And Ken was just crushing it in his career. He had just taken the position at MTV, which we're going to get to in a minute. And I remember picking him up in the, from the airport and my hands are kind of shaking on the steering wheel because I was so nervous because here this famous programmer on his way to New York to go program MTV is sitting next to me in my piece of shit car. And I drove him back to the radio station. And that was my very first time meeting Ken. And I'd like to welcome him uh, to the podcast. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. And, uh, my recollection of the drive was maybe a little bit different, or at least my hands were shaking for a completely different reason. <laughs> it was a rent wreck I don't remember what kind of car it was, but it wasn't a good. It was a Mitsubishi. <laughs> and I'm glad we made it to the radio station that afternoon. And, and the funny part about that is, is obviously we had never met before and hadn't seen each other for a long, long time. And you reminded me one day that once you were the big Benstown exec, that you were the guy that actually picked me up. And uh, <laughs> yeah, at that, that point, I was just some promotions assistant. And you're like, who cares? <laughs> yeah, I think you were like an intern or something, but uh, we were all interns <laughs> at one point. But. I was answering the phones. That's exactly right. I was answering the phones for Michael Steele. Well, let me give a, a bit of an introduction before we uh, get, get into it anymore. I'd like to welcome uh, Ken Benson. He's currently the uh, president and founder of P1 Research. Um, but prior to that, he led Pinnacle Media International. Uh, he brought up, uh, was part of the innovative Jack FM brand uh, and helped uh, innovate that in the UK and here in the US. Uh, he's a multi award winning uh, CHR programmer. Uh, he's also been a VP of music programming for MTV and an executive for Chancellor and AMFM and Citadel, uh, overseeing over 250 radio stations. Um, your awards, man, you must have a gigantic trophy case, but uh, 95, 97, 98, Program Director of the Year uh, from uh, Gavin. Uh, 97, he was the uh, Program Director of the Year uh, Friday morning uh, from Friday Morning Quarterback, FMQB. 
the 94 and 98. Uh, the Z100 in um, Portland was the station of the year under his uh, tutelage. And he was also the six-time nominee to program uh, as the program director and Station of the Year Awards for Billboard Magazine, two-time nominee for NAB, uh, Crystal and Marconi Awards, and also named one of the 25 most influential CH program directors of all time. Uh, as well as, my God, and I forgot about this, this was such a, he was uh, won the Air Grand Prize back in 98. And that was back when you could win a car, right? It was. You either won the Grand Prize was 30000 cash or Mercedes. Oh my, what did you take? Well, we had recently moved to New York. I was working at MTV and um, married, newly married at the time. So my wife uh, thought we should take the money to furnish our place, which Logical. probably was the right call. We were living in Manhattan at the, that point and you're gonna have a brand new convertible Mercedes parked in some garage somewhere. How's that gonna yeah. work out? So we Good took choice. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. What a great prize. That must've been really exciting when you got that. Was it uh, something you were expecting? I forget exactly how that, that's when you would pick all the records, right? Is that right. how that worked? Air for many years uh, was a competition for CHR programmers that you would listen to anywhere from probably two to five new releases a week. And you'd have to like predetermine in advance if it's going to be a top 10 record, top 25, top 40, no chart, or even think maybe number one. And you would get points over this 12-week period based on how well you guessed going into it. So I'd finished in the top 10 a number of times, never thought I'd win the car. So it was quite a surprise when they called me and told me that I won. Um, but yeah, I was basically trying to pick hits and, and figure out where they'd place, which is a lot more than whether or not the song is good. As you know, as a programmer, there's so many other factors that go into whether a song gets to a certain point on the chart, but sure. Yeah, was, and that's interesting. Fun. So you've always had an ear and it's kind of fascinating how you've evolved and we'll get into this more in a little bit, but from programming and being a phenomenal programmer and then into research. So you obviously uh, knew a lot about music and uh, had a good uh, sense of the, uh, of the research aspect uh, early on in your career. Well, Chachi, I would say, you know, I was never a music director. Actually, I went from like an on-air guy, promotion guy, right to PD. So I went right over that. So honestly, I, I don't think I had a great ear for picking the hits at first, but I trained my ear over time. And, and believe it or not, I think the air competition also really helped me figure out, you know, not just whether the song is good, but what promotional effort is there going to be by the record company? What's the commitment to making this happen? Um, that's a whole other thing you need to consider before a record goes on the radio. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. And so you not only had to have an idea of sonically was a song a hit, but did they have the marketing muscle behind it, the promo team behind it, the, 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 the right uh, tour behind it and so forth. Fascinating. Well, let's get to the early part of your career and then uh, we'll kind of take this chronologically. You first got excited and into radio as a young kid because your dad gave you a transistor radio. Yeah, my dad uh, still to this day loves audio, always had you know, the best audio equipment in our house of anybody I knew by far. Um, but I remember one day I was about five years old. He and I were shopping and we were at a shop and he, he bought me a $5 AM transistor radio, just a little black radio, the size of a Walkman. And it came with a little white cord with one earpiece. And I grew up in New York on Long Island. My dad worked in Manhattan. So I listened to two things basically on that radio, New York Yankee games. 
and WABC, which at the time was the biggest station in the United States. It was sure. such an exciting uh, station in the 70s. And uh, I think those two things got me hooked on radio. And so were the Yankees in the 70s, too. That's back when they had uh, Reggie Jackson and uh, uh, Dave Winfield and players like that, right? Yeah, the 77 and 78 champs. I've got the hat. Yeah. What an exciting time. So you've got your transistor radio listening to uh, World Series games and uh, WABC and got you hooked? Pretty much. Pretty much. I Did loved you- radio. And then, of course, you know, anytime we were in the car, the radio was on and um, I just listened to radio all the time. I love the music. I just love the energy and the excitement and the DJs. It was just fun. And uh, it just seemed like something, you know, I think a lot of kids back then, whether they got in the radio or not, I mean, the, the radio and the music was a good friend of yours. And then you go to school at high school and they happen to have a radio station there. Yeah. So I go to high school in, in ninth grade and they have a club date where you kind of walk around the gym and see what all the different clubs are available in the school. And I stumble upon a table that says 88.5 WPOB. And it turned out completely unbeknownst to me in the basement of the school, there was a 10 watt FM radio station. So of course I signed up for that club and uh, spent a lot of time down in that basement throughout high school. Um, learning and playing radio and it was an amazing experience and uh, gave me such a leg up on so many people because i had this experience at such a very early age is this something your parents are supportive of at this point or they see it uh, did you know this is like what you wanted to do with your career or you're still just doing this more as kind of a fun uh um, a hobby um i think within the first year i pretty much knew what i wanted to do and i wanted to do this um, there was only two things I ever wanted to do in my life. One was to fly airplanes and That's number cool. two was, was to work in radio. And, and I guess once I got this hands-on experience, um, and again, it was, you know, we weren't doing great things, but we were all learning and having fun. And in fact, uh, the late Harv Allen was a year ahead of me in high school. And, uh, so he and I became really great buds, spent a lot of time together at the high school radio station. And, and then I think it was probably when I was in grade 10, he was a year ahead. He had his driver's license. So we began interning at WBAB, uh, which was probably about a 10 mile drive. And most days after school, we'd get in his jalopy (laughs) and and, and drive to Babylon to the radio station and, and do whatever they wanted us to do. What was that feeling now graduating from a, a small student run station in the basement to now actually working at a real radio station? I would imagine, were you thrilled? Well, I don't know if it was working, it was volunteering. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was a thrill. I mean, it was an absolute thrill to go in there. And, and just we were willing to do anything, um, taking requests for the night show. We did call out out of the phone book where you'd actually sit in a room and go through the white pages and randomly call people and play hooks down the line. Um, I was not old enough to go to bars or clubs, but that was a big part of the business. BAB was a rock station. And since I wasn't allowed in the club, what I did is I stood in the parking lot and put stickers on people's cars. Wow. You were on the street. Well, I think that was one of the great things. Uh, Bob Buckman was the program director and morning guy uh, at that time. And I think one of the, again, the great things about working on Long Island is 
you've got all the New York City signals beaming in there. And Long Island to itself at the time, it's a smaller market now because other markets have added more population. But at the time, the Nassau Suffolk County market was ranked, I think, around number 11 or 12. So it was a really big market. But it was a big market without some of the major tools. We didn't have our own television stations, right? All the television was out of New York. You were competing directly with WPLJ and WNEWFM. And that was amazing, but you know we had just a fraction of the resources. So since we couldn't advertise on TV because you couldn't afford to buy New York television and you wouldn't want to waste it in New York City and Connecticut and New Jersey, where we didn't cover, um, Bob's strategy was really all about being in the clubs, being on the streets, being at the beaches. So those lessons became really helpful to me later on because we all know radio's always had limited resources when it comes to marketing and promotion. And only the biggest of stations back in the day had money for a lot of television. Um, you know, maybe the easy man's way to the top. So we actually went out there and worked it and had to, you know, use small budgets and make big things happen. And under Bob's leadership, that station was very successful. I've always looked at you as having a brilliant marketing mind as well. I mean, obviously a phenomenal programmer and a researcher, but some of the promotional work uh, that you did at Z100 in particular was just uh, amazing. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it a bit more, but it's interesting that early on, you already had a taste of research doing call out. You had a taste of promotions, putting bumper stickers on people's cars and understanding the importance of that guerrilla type marketing, which I think uh, is probably more relevant today than ever has been as everyone's budgets have been cut so dramatically from a marketing standpoint. And you've also uh, been involved just sonically because your father, it sounds like, was an audiophile. So it's interesting how those things really have shaped your career. That's true. Although my dad wasn't uh, too keen on me uh, going into radio. He was not? What did he do no, for a living? Um, my dad worked at the JCPenney headquarters in Manhattan. And as I got in high school, he had many different positions there, but he became one of their heads of recruiting and recruited a lot of college people into the company. And he met a lot of college people with communication degrees that either never worked in the industry or maybe worked for a very short time in a very small market and made no money <laughs> and, and then decided they wanted to get a real job. So he didn't think it was going to work out very well for me and really tried to steer me other ways. Uh, and I think perhaps that was a good thing because not only did I love radio, but I wanted to prove him wrong. Like I wanted him <laughs> to be proud of me. I wanted him to know that I could be successful if I set my mind to it. And uh, knock on wood, I've been pretty fortunate. So when you went to the State University of New York uh, at Plattsburgh, was he, and, and you studied communications, uh, that was not really with his support? Um, you know, I think at that time he, want, you know, he was willing to support me. Um, I also chose a state school because my dad said, if you go to a state school, I'll pay for it all. <laughs> he goes, if you want to go to private school, <laughs> you're gonna have to help out. And I knew enough about radio at that point. I figured when I got out of school, I wouldn't be making much money. So the last thing I wanted was debt. So that's why I chose that route. Well, it appears to have worked out really well for you. And you got to study abroad, by the way, uh, a little background. We call Ken internally, our, uh, <laughs> myself and uh, my partner, Andy, we refer to Ken as Mr. Worldwide because Ken 
Now is not a good example. This is one of the rare times Ken is home due to COVID-19, but Ken spends a tremendous amount of time on the road and has international clients all over the world. And so we run into Ken in uh, very exotic places. And so hence the name Mr. Worldwide. But it seems like you had a taste for travel early on because you went and studied abroad uh, in London, England. Um, Tell me about that. Did you study communications there? Um, I did actually. It was a program through the State University of New York system where we went to London for the semester. And it was actually a media program. It was a small amount of students, maybe around 20. So we had uh, some media classes. We also had a British history class. Um, But it was very interesting. I mean, clearly things in the UK and and radio has evolved so much differently. The BBC um, still has about half the listening in the UK. But you think about London, which is a massive city. I don't know, today it's around 12 million people in the metro area. Back in, I guess I'll say at the mid 80s, when I was there, there was a total of seven stations in London. That's it? That's it. And, and four were BBC Nationals. One was the BBC Local. There was Capital Radio. And I, I can't remember the other one. But there was, there was hardly any radio. Um, so that in itself was remarkable. Coming from New York, where you know you go up and down the dial, there's stations everywhere. Sure. When you were there and studying, did you get to intern at any of the stations in uh, the UK? Uh, I did not. Uh, that wasn't really part of the program. We had a full schedule. I had to do a kind of a thesis at the end of it, and I did one. I kind of made up the uh, the angle, which was the BBC's impact on commercial radio. And I met a lot of great people at, at the BBC places like Capital Radio, the American guy who ran Laser 558, which was a pirate ship out in the English Channel. We met, you know, because what he was doing was illegal. Like, so he's an American living in London. He's got the ship stationed out in the channel. So he was pretty fearful about who he talked to and who he met with because he could have been arrested or deported. Um so we met this was the same. There was a movie. There was a movie done about this, correct? Is that this was a pirate? Yeah, show? that was Radio Caroline, which is the most famous one. And in fact, uh, a friend of mine and another student, we actually had an opportunity to go on that ship on a Sunday morning on a supply run because they would occasionally do supply runs for the guys out on the ship, bringing food, whatever they need. And, and to be completely honest, um, my buddy went and I chickened out that morning. <laughs> Because I was afraid of, you know, I'd get arrested, deported, whatever. I, I, I didn't go, but sure. I saw some pictures that he took. And, Unbelievable. Uh, so he went and took them food and uh, different necessities? Well, he just went along for the boat ride, right, to go check it out. I, and see it. Um, I forget how that all came together. But, you know, in hindsight, I wish I had done it. But I figured if I get kicked out of school and thrown out of the country, my parents are going to kill me. Sure, it could have uh, ended your uh, your career. Would you say a lot of what you you learned being in London and certainly from the BBC, did you apply that when you came back to the States and programmed? Well, I came back uh, to the States, had to finish a semester uh, at Plattsburgh before I graduated. Um, so I don't think I applied it right away, but it certainly opened my mind. Uh, I mean, if you ever listened to radio in Europe or other places or the BBC or you know, even hearing pirate radio for the first time, it opens your minds to, to new and different ways and different approaches people are using. So I think from that point of view, it was uh, extremely helpful. And in fact, I could even remember later on when I was at Z100, 
looking at the British playlist and, you know, I could see early on, like the Backstreet Boys had exploded in Europe and couldn't get arrested in the States at this point. Um, Spice Girls were first in the UK. They came here some months later. So I, I would always watch those charts and try and pick what may cross over here. Wasn't always right, but those were obviously two of the, the biggest acts of the 90s. So you come back from the UK and what's your first gig when you're back? Well, a couple things. Um, throughout college, uh, Bob Buckman finally hired me to be a babe. So when I was home at Christmas break and summertime, I do fill in on the radio station, which was. Oh, fantastic. Were you keeping in touch with him when you were over in the UK? Absolutely. In fact, he had done an internship when he was at Ithaca College at Capital Radio. So he was really oh, wow. kind of jealous that I was over there following in his footsteps to a degree. Um, Sounds like he was a, a mentor to you. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I hadn't seen Bob for many years and, and ran into him at the Worldwide Radio Summit maybe seven, eight years ago at the bar. And I just had to go up to him and say, Bob, listen, you know, I just got to tell you that so many of the lessons I learned at BAB under your leadership have helped me in every step of my radio programming career. So thank you. Um, but yeah, but we did it out of necessity. We had no budgets. We had to make things happen and compete against New York. <laughs> and that was the wild thing about being on the air there, even as a part-timer, you know, it's a major market. I was getting paid $4.50 an hour, which even back, the minimum wage was three thirty-five, and here I am on the radio. So I wasn't making much more than the guy at McDonald's. But I, it was such a rush to be on the air because I'm thinking, okay, yeah. I'm on the air at one hundred two point three, right next to us at one hundred two seven is NEW, and these iconic personalities making huge money sure. are right on the adjacent frequency. And then, of course, at PLJ, which was a rock station at that point, you know, same thing. I'm on against people like Carol Miller and Pat St. John and Jim Kerr. And these icons, you know, that at the top of their game working in New York City, and here I'm in a little, basically an intern, filling in for $4.50 an hour. It was a rush. It had to have been. So how did that come about? So Bob hires you back, you graduate, and you'd interned obviously earlier, and you graduate, and he was looking for someone to do some weekend and, and uh, fill-in work, and you put your, your your name in the hat. I had to imagine, I, had to, I have to imagine that a lot of people were still going for that gig. Well, this happened uh, while I was in college. So when I came back from, from London in my final semester at school um, in Burlington, Vermont, which was right across the lake from where I went to school, uh, a new CHR had signed on called 95 X a year prior. And it blew up the market and had 25 shares. And it was just a really fun exciting top 40 station. And prior to that, really the two FM top 40s in the market were automated. I don't know if you remember what automated stations were. I'd never heard one in New York because there wasn't any, right? It was a big market. There were fully staffed radio stations. Sure. In Plattsburgh, Burlington market, which is about an hour south of Montreal. And thank God we could hear some of the Montreal stations, even though some were in French, to keep our sanity, like at least yeah. the radio <laughs> I mean, automated stations, you'd walk into the building there was this big machine with four reel-to-reels and cart machines, and everything was played off tape. Everything was recorded. There was no DJs. This was not um, voice tracking. There would be time checks on a cart. It's three minutes past the hour. Um, and, you know, occasionally you might get a back sell on a record, but it was the worst radio I'd ever heard in my life. 
So this station comes on in the sleepy market and explodes and it was great. So I got back and I said, you know what? I love rock. I love rock music. I love rock, but I want to be involved in CHR. So brought an air check over to the PD and uh, got hired to do part-time. So I don't remember what I was making there. I'm sure it was around the same range as Long Island, but it was a lot more difficult to get to. You either had to drive around the lake, which was about two hours to do your shift. Oh my gosh. And of course, if I was doing a weekend overnight or something, the ferries don't run overnight. So that's when I drive around. But if I took the ferry across, which would shave off about an hour, all the money I made would pay for the ferry. Right. Unbelievable. So I was doing it for free. I was doing it out of love. It was such Still a interning. Run. Yeah. Well, I was well, kind of interning. I got paid, but yeah, so, but <laughs> it was the, so the day the after same gra- net. Right. Literally the day after graduation, I, my parents had gone home the day of graduation. The next day I was leaving my car loaded up and I was 335 miles from home. So it's not a short ways. I get home that night at like six o'clock and my dad goes, Oh, um, the general manager from 95 triple X called you. He, you need to call him tonight. So I call him and he goes, we'd like to offer you a job. I'm like, great. He goes, um, Holy moly. You know, I'm thinking here, I'm just going to school. I'm going to take it easy this summer, work part-time at BAB. It's going to be great. Um, he goes, we can offer you a full-time job doing overnights. And this is Monday night. Now he goes, you need to start Friday. And I'm like, Oh Friday. My gosh. Why couldn't you have called me yesterday? First off, I was much closer with all my belongings. And <laughs> I, I took the job. I took the job. So that was an incredibly short stint because you had only been doing the fill-in for how long? Uh, my last, you know, probably January through May. So just a short oh time. I doing part-time, yeah. Were they upset or they were pretty happy oh, about it? Yeah. No, they, they, were, they were totally cool. They, un- they understood. Um, yeah. Cause I, I was just coming back for the summer to do some fill in and, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that big a deal really. So I took this job. So now you've got doing, yeah. Overnights. I mean, this has got to be, you've got to be thrilled now. Cause you're what late teens, early twenties, and you've got your already a full-time gig in radio, which is pretty hard to come by at that age. Right. So I took the job, I uh, did overnights for a few months, which was brutally difficult just to sleep, especially it's, it's summertime now. Right. And it was just, it was hard. And, uh, then we had a change and we added a 10 P to 2 AM shifts. So I quickly moved up to that and I was only there full time for a little over a year and maybe about six months in, I moved to two to six in the afternoon and became the promotion director at the radio station. Oh, no kidding. So that's a pretty big shift for you. Was promotion something that I know you'd obviously interned and, and put some bumper stickers on cars, but were you interested in, 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 uh, in promotions? Look, I loved it all. I would have done anything. <laughs> were you still on the air at this point or just doing promotions only? Come on. This is a small market. Of course I was on the air. <laughs> okay. So you didn't lose your air shift. Well, I know sometimes though, you know, coming off the air for people can be really dramatic. So I didn't know if that were some, something that you, you wanted to pursue, pursue promotions or this is something that would allow you to do both. No, I, I did both. And and then what happened next, again, about a year or so later, the original owners that I went to work for at Triple X had sold the company and they bought a station in the Albany, New York area, licensed to Saratoga. And they were looking for a PD, which I applied for, and I got the job. 
And I was 22 years old. I'm like, this is great. And a programmer in Saratoga. Does your right. father now have some more faith in this career path or is he still kind of poo-pooing the idea? Well, you know, I, I think he was still concerned about how little money I was making. Sure. I think when I, I think when I went to triple X, I was making two fifty a week. And now I took this PD job. I think I was making 300 <laughs> and I had all this responsibility. We were a, a brand new station. We were blowing up the format and kind of putting an AC station on the air. And I just, didn't care. I wanted to be the PD. So, uh, how did that feel? I mean, now you're the captain of the ship. Um, how did it feel? I, it felt great, really. I mean, it was kind of the dream. It was like the first step into the dream of being a PD. And as you know, getting that first shot is so difficult. And I got it at a very young age. Um, I thought I knew quite a bit. Obviously, I learned over time. I didn't know that much when I started. <laughs> But it was, it was a lot of fun. And I did that for a couple of years. Did you take to leadership pretty naturally? Or was that something that uh, Bob and other people kind of helped you uh, along the way learn? Well, I, I mean, I think one of the biggest things I probably learned as a manager, you know, at first I would, I guess, I thought everybody would see things the way I saw things, right? <laughs> and, and you learn pretty quickly that's not, the way it works out. You know, people have their own issues, their own reasons for doing things, their own ways to get motivated. And I think any manager, you know, nobody's a great leader the first day. It's with very few exceptions. I could think of a few guys who were probably brilliant that I worked with, but for the most part, I think it's an acquired skill and it really is a skill. At that age, were some of the veteran staff going, this is ridiculous? I mean, a 22 year old PD, did you get resistance? Not really. Um, the staff was fairly young. Uh, the morning guy was the oldest guy. He was probably, I don't know, 15 years older than I was. But um, no, we, we managed and we, we got through it. It was a new radio station. We were a small station, didn't have a lot of resources, didn't have a lot of money. But you know how it is when you first get in the business. I mean, you just love it. And everyone there just loved it and wanted to do it. And we had fun. So where do you go from there? So a couple of years in, uh, I realized I, I want to get to, you know, take a next step. If you remember the old radio record days, they had P1, P2, and P3 stations. Sure. Um, in the Albany market, you know, we didn't have a full market signal, so we were a P nothing. <laughs> we were a Gavin reporter, um, which, was, which was fine. And Dave Schoen was great to us, but it was time to kind of move up the profile. And also I felt two years in, you know, I need to, I need to grow. I need to get to a situation that's a little better resourced. So I took a job at WTHT. At the time it was FM 103, a CHR in Portland, Maine. So you've been in both Portlands, Portland, Oregon, and Portland, Maine. Probably one, one of the few to live in, to live in both, both markets, but a beautiful, beautiful market. Oh, it's great, except in the winter. Yeah, sure. I'm sure it's rough. An, an excellent lobster, of course. The funny thing is when I went to Z100 in Portland, the two finalists, were myself and Pete Casenza. Pete has been an executive at Columbia Records now for many years, but he and I had both programmed FM 103 in Portland, Maine, and he was there right before me. Oh my gosh. It was kind of ironic that two guys that programmed the other Portland are the two finalists for the other Portland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are the odds of that? I have to be relatively slim. So you're in Portland, Maine, and you're programming another CHR station. 
and right. you've kind of finding this is your format, your niche, even though you're a, a rock guy by heart, you've really found your way within in CHR. And uh, tell me about Portland, Maine and programming there. It was, uh, it was fun. It was, we had a, another competitor, uh, G98. So we had a direct competitor that was a very good station. Um, Harry Nelson, who was a big time DJ in Boston for many years, um, did some work at the radio station. So, I mean, it was, it was a great station And Portland, Maine is less than two hour drive from Boston up the coast. So, um, you know, it was a very good station. Our station now, was good too. Go ahead. Are you still single at this time? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was like 24, 25 now. 25. <laughs> yeah. Enjoying uh, working at a CHR station and being single life. Life was good. Married to radio, right? Yeah, sure. So um, station sells, the new owners come in and they tell us one day that Rick Sklar, the veteran iconic PD from WABC for so many years, the station that was my formative station is now going to be our consultant. I was kind of excited at first. Um, you know, here's this legend. I've read his book, Rock in America. I've grown up with the station. Now I can learn from this guy. This is going to be incredible. And in many ways, it was fantastic. Uh, Rick at the time was in his 60s and mechanically, conceptually, I mean, I learned a lot of big picture things from Rick. He admitted that he didn't know the music anymore and didn't attempt to. But his wife was his music director, his wife who never worked in a radio station. So I had to deal with his wife on what we were going to add and what the library was going to be. And we definitely uh, didn't get along in that regard for a couple of reasons. We did our currents based off the billboard cassette singles, top 30 chart. Because Rick was all about sales, but I'm thinking cassette singles, people weren't buying that many cassette singles anyway. And this is how we're going to choose the music in Portland. so that didn't feel right. And the way we did the gold, and this is the way Rick had done the gold at WABC, you take the Billboard Top 100 chart for the past five years, and you put it all in. So the one record that really bugged me that we had to put in was Bat Dance, if you remember that from the Batman movie, yeah, which was yeah, a horrible sure. Prince record when it came out. I completely remember that. It was horrible. And I'm like, Really? Like, you know, can't we use some judgment here? This was a record for a short window when the movie was released. It was crap. You know, playing this now. is So that didn't go over very well. Uh, so you've now, this has got to be tough. You're in your mid-20s and you've got this iconic, uh, certainly programmer now, consultant, and you guys aren't seeing eye to eye. And are you venting this to your management or is this something you're internalizing? How are you handling that stress? Uh, definitely internalizing it. I had a call one day to interview for the music director and on-air position at 99.5, the Fox in Detroit, which was a rock CHR at the time. It's late eighties. So here I am in, you know, Portland is a much bigger market now than it was then just because they've added a lot of counties. So I think now it's around a top 100 market. So Detroit comes calling at that time. It's a top 10 market. I'm like, I'm going for this interview. Sure. So I fly out to Detroit for the day. And I remember it was a Monday, right? So I missed work. And uh, I guess I'll spare some of the details, but this new manager that was there basically said, if you ever see me in a red tie, someone's going down. (laughs) 
And he was just a, he was a tough, really tough New York guy. And he was this is guy. the manager in, De- in Detroit. No, this is the manager in, um, in Portland. Oh, okay. In so Portland you went to Detroit, went, went to Detroit, interviewed, and now you're back in Portland. Yeah. So I fly back that night. Got I it, show up got the it. next morning, go to the department head meeting and the guy's wearing a blue suit with a red tie. <laughs> <laughs> so guess what happened to me right after that meeting? No way. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you get popped by the guy in the, the GM who's wearing his red tie and why he'd found out that you'd gone to Detroit to interview or. Yeah, he felt I wasn't committed to the cause here. I'm like, listen, you know what? I'm totally committed to the cause, but you know, top 10 market calls. I'm sure. Go check it out. Oh man, that sounds un- unfair. Now, sadly, I, I, in Detroit too, they never hired for the position after the interview. Oh so, my God. <laughs> I didn't get that job and I lost oh, the job geez. I had. So where did you go then? Uh, I took a couple months off looking for a gig. And, did um, you stay in Portland or you go back to New York to be with your parents? You know, I, I stayed in Portland for a bit and then my parents had moved to Dallas and I never really spent any time in Dallas. So I decided to uh, get out of the cold, frigid winter in Portland, Maine and, and spend a little time in Dallas. And then I got a call to interview for a job at WRQN 93Q, which was one of the CHRs in Toledo, Ohio, and got the job. Now you're in Toledo. What's that like? You've been in the East Coast. You've been, uh, you know, obviously New York. You've been in Portland. Uh, you've been in upstate New York. You've kind of bounced around, but this is the first time in the Midwest. Yeah, it's, it's, it was quite uh, funny in some regards because my first cousins grew up in Toledo, Ohio. And I recall as a kid going to visit them and, you know, being from New York, you think everything's the best and the greatest and the biggest. And you go to Toledo and we just kind of, laughed at them and made fun of them, right? Now I have to call them up and tell them I'm actually coming to live there and work in the city I made fun of. <laughs> I tell you, the best thing about Toledo is it's a, a couple hour car ride. I mean, Detroit's a little over an hour. Cleveland's two hours. Cincy's three hours. Indy's four. Chicago's four. Toronto's four. So, um, you know, it wasn't my favorite market to live in, but it was very easy on the weekends to go to other places and, and see cool things. And how long do you spend there? Uh, about a year and a half. And then from there you go to Omaha? Yeah, I went to Sweet 98, right. It is amazing how many talented programmers have gone through Omaha and uh, yourself, uh, Tracy Johnson was there, Michael Steele was there, Dan Kiley went through uh, Omaha. Um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm missing, missing others, but it seems like so many talented programmers have spent time in that city. That is true. And in fact, if you think back to the early days of Top 40 and, and the stories about how it came about of Ted Stores watching jukeboxes in Omaha and people putting money in and playing the same songs over and over and, and then experimenting with that on the radio on Coil in Omaha, it, it's really the birthplace of CHR. Sure. It's a really good point. So I hadn't actually, in- I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Because that is where that story comes from and originates from, correct? Correct, yeah. So it was, you know, kind of an honor to go through there. But, uh, you know, being a guy that grew up on the East Coast and now I'm in my second market in the Midwest and I'm like, what's Omaha going to be like? And actually, you know, I really love the city. Uh, I've done some research work there in recent years and gotten back and I love it even more. It's, it's a great city. I think it's completely underrated. Um, 
and it's it's a cool place. I mean, they've got to defend themselves a lot, right? Because it's just kind of in the middle of the, of the country. But it's a it's a sure. really great place to live. Yeah. Um, we had an amazing uh, success there, and it was just. I think back, I mean, those are some of the best years in radio. Well, not even years. I was there not even a year, but some of the best times I ever had in radio was at Sweet 98. I have an affinity for Omaha. It happens to be my father went to Creighton uh, Medical oh, wow. School in Omaha. My mom went to UNO. Uh, we work with the morning show Todd and Tyler um, at KEZO in Omaha. Uh, great. Uh, and obviously also where, where Warren Buffett is based, but uh, a, a great town. Was Sweet 98, Ken, was that the station that had the hydraulic lift in the studio and would actually lift you up? And I believe it was kind of like in a, in a mall uh, setting and uh, huge glass windows so people that were passing by could see the DJs actually doing their shows. It was the coolest building in studio I'd ever seen and worked in in my life. Um, the station was owned by a prominent local attorney who was also friends with Mr. Buffett. And his wife was, I, I recall, was a designer, Mary Mitchell, and she had great vision. So you got to think they probably built this studio in the 80s. I'm there in the early 90s, um, you know, kind of the MTV days. And it was an old building downtown Omaha, and there was two storefront studios. One was for the AM news talk station. The other side was for Sweet 98. And it really was kind of the space age things. You're right. There was a lift that you got on a hydraulic lift that would lift you up like three or four feet up to the control. So if you would drop something off the side of this lift, I mean, it's four feet down. <laughs> and, and I guess I, I never saw pictures, but heard the stories when they originally did it. She had people dress up in like spacesuits and costumes. I mean, she really no got way. Like, Oh yeah. That, that piece was done when when I got so there, theatrical, right? it was, and it yeah. was, so, it was like in a mall or uh, off uh, off of a sidewalk, so people could actually passersby could watch you do your do your show. Correct? You had like an right. audience and, outside the glass, right? And sadly, now it's the uh, the Chamber of Commerce operate out of that building, but oh, it was one man. of the best radio facilities ever. Michael Steele, I believe, showed me pictures years ago, and he said one of the challenges was, too, if you had to get down to go to the restroom, it took some time. So if you started a song and you had three and a half minutes to play the song and, uh, and run to the bathroom, it took about 30 or 40 second, seconds for the hydraulic lift to go down <laughs> to run to the bathroom, and then you had to run back. It took another 30 or 40 seconds for the hydraulic lift to come up. So you had to time things yeah. very carefully. You know, I only did some part-time fill in there, so I, I don't remember that to that degree, but I'm sure that's true. <laughs> so you spend less than a year in Omaha, and at that point, is that when you got the call to go to Portland? Well, yeah. I mean, I had no intention uh, of spending so little time there uh, because basically when I went there, the station was performing terribly. Here was this heritage CHR station that had lost its luster. And was getting beat pretty good by the competitor, which was actually directly across the street. Wow. Um, so when we came in, uh, Tracy Johnson was the consultant. So it was the first time I connected with Tracy. He brought me in. And we were basically putting a new radio station on. We were hiring all new DJs. Uh, we hired the morning guy from across the street because we identified for a strategic study that he had a lot of potential that they probably didn't know. So if we took him and put him on a bigger platform, He'd probably do okay, which he did. Um, the other thing I noticed one day, we hired Tom Jurdrum from, he was at KZO, not KZOK, WZOK at the time in Rockford, Illinois, which was another kind of iconic CHR station in the Midwest. 
to be the APD and music director and night guy. And, and it seems so simple, but I remember we were driving around one Sunday looking for apartments to rent. And we went to a couple different places. We each filled out applications for our own place. And when you look at apartments, a lot of the managers tend to be younger women that would be in the demo of Suite 98. So we'd fill out these applications and instead employer, we write Mitchell Broadcasting, KQKQ. You know, how long you've been there? Uh, 24 hours, right? Like a, a week, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, we got the same reaction at all three places. They look at it and go, Mitchell Broadcasting, KQKQ, what's that? And, and the station had left the moniker Sweet 98, the prior PD, thought it was uncool. And a lot of wow. people outside the market didn't necessarily get Sweet 98, thought it was a, a stupid name. Um, but three times in a row on that Sunday afternoon, the response was Mitchell Broadcasting, KQKQ. What station is that? And I would say, Sweet 98. She goes, oh my God, I love Sweet 98. So as we're driving back to the hotels we're staying at, because we hadn't even found a place to live, I said to Tom, I go, we got to change the name back. And besides all the other changes, we, we did a wholesale change to the radio station. We were a really good station, I felt. But um, I think calling it what the people called it, as simple as it is, really helped us in the Arbitron Diaries at the time. And the station came rocketing back. The first book, my recollection is something like 8.6 to a 12.7. Holy moly. Right. And, and this is that's in 1992. Incredible. If you look back at history in 1992, that's when hip hop started to get really big and mainstream CHR was getting killed. Sure. And, and people sure. were predicting its demise at that point too, that maybe- Yeah, because you, know, you also had grunge to contend with at that point as well. Right. Yeah, I remember we played uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit as a current on the station at night. Wow. So anyhow, um, we come rocking back and we're starting to get a lot of press because we're one of the only CHRs in the country that's doing well. So my phone started to ring a lot. And I remember um, I had an interview at WTIC in Hartford and the one at KKRZ in Portland. And I flew out to both. And uh, I guess growing up in the East Coast, the West Coast was calling my name. Sure. And about six months in, I left and took the job, which I felt terrible about leaving Omaha. But at the same point, I had this personal goal that was to be in a major market by the time I was 30. And I think at that time I, I was about to turn 27. And I said, you know, I, I got to do it. And, and I that's amazing. Z100. And you left him in Omaha in a great spot. Yeah, we did. In the station fact, was uh, doing fantastic. Right. We promoted Tom Jordan to the program director and we hired Michael Steele before I left to be the music director night guy. Oh, so you're, you're the guy that I have to blame. So you've actually, you're incredibly integral in my career because Michael is who brought me into the business and I answered phones for him down in San Diego and he had come from Omaha where I'm guessing he probably met Tracy and well, obviously you along right. the way. So that's how that whole connection, I was never clear on that. So thank you for and, clarifying that. And we found him working for Bob Lewis in Rapid City, South Dakota. So that oh was a big gosh. move up to come to Omaha. Sure, sure. Yeah, Bob's another great guy. Really bright mind. Yeah, definitely. He's, yeah. So you end up now in Portland. You've got two opportunities, one in Hartford, one in Portland. You choose the West Coast. And tell me about the situation in Portland. Who owns, uh, is that uh, J-Corps at the time? Who owns you? No, it time? became J-Corps later. It was Great American out of Cincinnati, which owned Q102 in Cincinnati. That was the only other CHR we had. And aside from that, it was pretty much a big rock company. We owned stations like Riff in Detroit, 
and uh, KBPI in Denver and the big rockers in Tampa and Atlanta and Columbus and Kansas City. Um, so we were uh, Jimmy Steele, who became the PD at Q102 shortly after I got. We were kind of like we were the two lone wolves in this company of rock dogs. Wow. Jimmy's had a, just a phenomenal career. Um, yeah, he really has. So, He's a great uh, guy. Really good guy. Very another very bright mind uh, doing really well now in uh, Chicago. So you officially migrate to Portland and you're 27 years old. You've accomplished your goal and you get to this, uh, you know, the CHR station. How's it doing at the time when you inherit the, uh, inherit the reins? Uh, you know what? They had fired the PD. Um, you know, again, as I stated, a lot of CHRs weren't doing very well. And it was really hard for stations because the current music was either crisscross on one side or Nirvana and Pearl Jam on the other without much in the middle. Um, so the format was really struggling uh, musically. So the station, you know, I, rating wise, it wasn't terrible. It probably wasn't what their expectations were or what it used to be, but it, it wasn't terrible. And, and the um, big, and the, who's escaping? You had a big morning show. Um, what was the gentleman's name who did mornings on uh, Z at the time? When I first got there, the main host was a guy named Humble Billy Hayes. Oh, no, it may be confusing. And then it was Scott Thrower, who came from okay. Rumble and Thrower in Philadelphia. And then um, when things started taking off, we hired John Murphy back, who was John Murphy. San Diego guy. That's it. Yes, yes, that's how. So I knew uh, John. I met John a few times. Um, I met him through Rick Dees. And that's right. who. So, okay. So you get in to Z. What's the first thing that you do? Well, what does everybody do, right? They want to change things. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, like anybody, I thought the music rotation system wasn't right. I didn't think the music was right. Um, wanted to work on the presentation and the sound of the radio station. I mean, all the things PDs, especially I think uh, younger PDs want to do. We just want to change things and put our mark on it. So... You know, it really took a couple of years there before things got rolling. I mean, the first couple of years weren't easy. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the first book was pretty good. The second book was not good. And I was really devastated and kind of worried about my job. Um, and, you know, again, top 40 was in a pretty tough spot at that point. And we had commissioned some research and at the time, most researchers for CHR, they wanted to take the station's hot AC, which I was reluctant to do because I didn't believe it was the right thing to do. It wasn't what the brand had stood for. They wanted to play a lot more, you know, gold, older music. And now it's 1994, which was the 10th anniversary of the radio station. So I'm like, no, we can't do this, you know. At the time, the superstars of the 80s and 90s and that type of positioning was very big. And I'm like, no, we can't do that just it's not cool it's not it's not what the station is we don't want to do this so i came up with this concept to include older music in the mix in what i thought was a cool and clever way so we started saying uh or positioning ourselves as a decade of hits z100 celebrating our 10th anniversary with a decade of hits which gave us an excuse to play a record that gary bryan would put on the station when he signed it on in 1984 Right. As opposed to just randomly playing old songs in the mix. And we put some really And cool in a time when there wasn't a lot of music in your corner as well. Right. Yeah, that's really bright. So we did that for about a year or so. We kind of milked that done. And then the music started to improve. And 
we made a change in the morning show. Like we said, we brought John Murphy back. He was the second morning guy at the radio station. Um, there's an amazing, talented producer um, named Dan Clark. Not the best on-air talent, but the guy was a genius and a creative genius and just thought bigger than life. And, and we just created some amazing content, not only on the morning show, but just on the radio station. And I guess I was there almost six years. The last three and a half years was really fun. The last two and a half years was absolutely amazing. You guys are absolutely firing on all cylinders because this is when I get into the industry and I start hearing a lot about you and uh, everything that you guys are doing. And I think you were really just looked upon as one of the best, probably top five uh, stations in the country in regards to performance and just the creativity from a marketing standpoint. And then you blow up on a national exposure, uh, especially you, when you do the remix of the Bruce Springsteen Secret Garden song that went along with Jerry Maguire. And this movie was, was that 96 or 97 when that movie came out? Yeah, probably 97 maybe. Cameron Crowe uh, with uh, Renee Zellweger and uh, Tom, Tom Cruise. And uh, this is still when soundtracks were gigantic and Bruce Springsteen did The Secret Garden, which was a smash. And fill us in a little bit about how that came to be because this thing just exploded. So growing up in New York, I was a big Springsteen fan. If you're from New York, you're a Springsteen or a Billy Joel fan or both, certainly at that time, right? They're two big local icons. Um, so they sent the CD single out, listened to it. I'd heard it before. I'm like, you know, this isn't going to get played on the radio. One night, I remember going to see the film with some of the DJs and saw how the song was used in the film. Just had this idea about maybe, you know, how do we, how can we get this record on the radio? Cause I love Bruce. No one's going to play it. So this idea occurred to me, um, well, if we can get the drops from the movie, maybe there's something we can do. And initially we just wanted to do it as a morning show bit. So I remember taking record calls one day on a Monday and I'm talking to John Bulos and I can't remember how it came up, but he had some friend in the Academy that could get me the screening copy on a VHS cassette of Jerry Maguire. Uh -huh. So he sends it to me he's like, you know, you can't do anything with this. So we take it with my production guy who hadn't seen the movie. And I said, go home and watch this with your wife. Here's my idea. Here's a song. I want to kind of tell the story of the film over this four minute song. So he comes in the next day. He goes, yeah, great movie. Um, I got the clips. Um, let me just work on this. So he's the one that actually put it together. It was kind of my idea. I hear the finished thing and, and I'm like, wow, Matt, this is really good. And we bring it in my office and a bunch of salespeople were right outside my office door. And I say, Hey, invited the women in the office, said, come on in. I want you to listen to this and, and tell us what you think. So this is in the afternoon. Like we were going to play it the next morning and they're in tears. Wow. And we're like, oh my God, this, this might really be something. So the morning show plays it a couple times the next morning and it blows up. So my music director at the time, Tommy Austin, um, tells Jerry Blair about it. And the next thing we know, Donnie Einer, the president of Columbia is on the phone saying, oh my God, I just heard this. This is amazing. You guys got to get it to us. We're going to send this everywhere. Holy moly. But it was really just an idea and something to do to be topical on the morning show became this song that got played, you know, in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Ireland, Australia, all over the place. This becomes so gigantic that Howard Stern gets a hold of it 
and actually poked fun at you and turned it into almost an hour long bit uh, that he did with his cast of characters. What, when you heard about that, how did you feel? Well, Howard Stern broadcasts on the East Coast, so we're three hour time zone away, right? So we're three hours earlier. So at six in the morning, my phone starts ringing. I think the first guy that called was Ken Lane, who's a record guy at Arista, and says, oh my God, uh, Howard Stern's talking about you. I'm like, what? I, I'm waking up. What, what do you mean he's talking about you? He's talking about you. I go, what is he doing? Why, why is he talking about you? Because he's ripping you for the Jerry Maguire mix. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. So Stern was on one of the rock stations in Portland, KUFO. So I call the guys at the station. I go, hey, start taping KUFO because he's going to be talking about this. And um, of course he did. We got the audio and they started playing clips of it on our station and we made some promos out of it. But yeah, I mean, it blew our mind. I mean, that an idea for a morning show becomes this thing Howard Stern's talking about nationwide on a show. To my knowledge, it was also the first song that people have put drops over to um, make make more emotion and certainly uh, kind of, I think, paint the picture of the time. It may have been done earlier, but it certainly was the first one that I had heard. And I've now heard that formula done multiple times. In fact, we just did something very similar and borrowed your idea for everything that's going on with COVID-19. So in my mind, I've really credited you and your imaging director of the time of creating this genre because we've heard this uh, it happened after 9-11. It's you know happened uh, during the uh, the uh, Desert Storm, uh, different times of crisis. Um, I've I've heard this come up, and uh, these songs I've always resonated with me, and so I'm been very impressed of uh, of that intuition that you had to do it. Well, you know, I don't know if we were first. I don't know if anybody else that's done it before. Certainly with a movie. I mean, again, it was just a love of Bruce Springsteen seeing the movie, saying this is perfect for our target. I mean, Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger. You know, how can we marry these two and get something on the radio that might provide an entertaining bit? That was really the premise of it all. What happened after was took us completely off guard and by total and complete surprise. It's nothing we ever intended to do. Um, our entire time at Z100 was all about doing something that was great for the radio station. We didn't really, you know, what happened afterwards didn't really matter because one of the things I learned along the way with a couple of firings along the way, too, is, you know, if you want to keep your job, you need to have good ratings. So I was obsessed. <laughs> That's true. I was obsessed with good ratings. Like, you know, yeah. I wanted good ratings. I don't know. We just, we had funds and we took chances and had ideas and ran with them. And, and in many occasions, uh, the ideas became far bigger than we ever anticipated they, they would turn out in the first place. I want to play a little bit of uh, Secret Garden for you. And then uh, let's follow that up with a piece of uh, the Howard Stern bit uh, of him tearing you, uh, tearing you apart because it is quite fun. I think he called me an a-hole. <laughs> got a hammer in a vice, But into the secret garden don't think twice. What if we got married? If I said that, would you stay? Uh, don't do that. Don't say that unless you've gone mad. Well, say it if you want to. How far to Will you marry me? That place where Ken Benson, program director of KKRZ in Portland, Oregon, has had this idea idea after viewing the movie. And together with his production director, Matt Jones, 
develop what has turned out to be something truly special. Just imagine Matt Jones. He's sitting in the production room. Yeah. And this guy comes running in and says, look, I got this great idea. Yeah. We got to cut up clips from Jerry Maguire and put them to a Bruce Springsteen song. Yeah. And you're going, oh, my boss is such an a-hole. <laughs> Enclosed is the CD of Bruce Springsteen's Secret Garden, which includes special drops. Drops. Special drops from the Academy Award-nominated movie Jerry Maguire. Now it's in quotes. When Matt and I finally sat down and heard the final mix, it absolutely exceeded our expectations. <laughs> You've had those two idiots sitting there? I know it exceeded Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew my dream was going to be a reality. I could talk about Z100 uh, with you forever, um, but uh, we, we wouldn't be able to get past uh, or, or get on to the rest of your career. But I know um, uh, Tommy Austin, you brought him on uh, there, and he's gone on to have a tremendous career. Uh, you not only did some uh, phenomenal promotions, uh, you uh, at the time uh, did something with Tanya Harding, uh, who was an incredibly big deal, as I'm sure you guys uh, can remember, um, with Nancy Kerrigan and uh, the whole incident uh, uh, with the, with it was with a crowbar, if I remember right, or a pipe. Um, and so I know you, uh, you were always incredibly topical and uh, on top of things there. Um, but I, I want to move on, and I want you to tell me, if you wouldn't mind, about uh, MTV and how that came to be. Okay. Well, a couple things just to finish up on, on Z100. It was an incredible run. Uh, the last nine quarterly rating periods, each book was up. And during that nine quarter period, we went, I think, from a 7-1 to an 11-2 or something, 11-3. I don't Jeez. remember the exact numbers. And, and we were leading the market by four shares at that point. So we were just, we were crushing it. And we were having so much fun. And it was, it was really great opportunity. Um, and, and some, you know, moments in my career I'll always cherish were my times at KKRZ. Now that I got sidetracked, I forgot your question. <laughs> <laughs> How does MTV come to be? All right. So as I was at Z100 and we were starting to really kill it in the ratings and, and some of these things we were doing with Michael Jackson or Tanya Harding or Bruce Springsteen were getting national attention. Um, I had quite a few opportunities to leave. Places like Miami, Philly, Dallas, Chicago. And I finally said to myself, I'm, I really love it here. We're having so much fun. Unless it's New York or Los Angeles, I am not going to leave. So I first had an opportunity. You're married at this point, Ken? Um, I got married in September of 97. So okay, I left Z in, I think, around February, March of 98. Okay, got it. So you're in, in a committed relationship and you've, yeah. you know, made Portland's now been your home for five or six years. Right, which is the longest I stayed anywhere in radio up until that point. Sure. So again, I... I figured if it wasn't New York or LA, there was really no reason to move. Plus, I loved it. I loved living in Portland, and uh, I was just having a blast. So I had a call from, uh, you might remember, a station that was short-lived in New York, a uh, hot AC station called Big 105. So that's the first time yeah, yeah. New York came a-calling. And as much as I had always, up to that point, wanted to program a radio station in New York and go home, right? And impress my friends and family at home that after I've worked in all these markets around the country that you probably never heard of, <laughs> <laughs> I now made it like I wanted to make it right. Um, but my gut just told me that that station wasn't going to work. 
because it was owned by Chancellor at the time that owned KTU, Arrhythmic CHR, Z100, and Light. Like, and here's a hot AC in the middle of all that. I'm like, how is that going to work? And the last thing I ever wanted to do was go back to New York and be a failure. It'd be too embarrassing given that I grew mm-hmm. up there and then my friends, family, hey, you couldn't make it to New York, you know, go back to uh, Toledo or whatever. With your- <laughs> no. Um, so I didn't take the job. And, and then a short time later, I, I get a call one day from Jeff Pollack, who's MTV's consultant, and says, you know, Andy Schoen is leaving. Would you be interested in interviewing for his position? And now I'm about, I don't know, 32 years old. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds interesting. I never thought about working at MTV. But I'm also saying at the same token, if the next guy has a job for five or six years, next time it comes around, I'm definitely going to be too old for this job. They won't want me. So I guess I was married for a few months at that point. And my wife had a house. I had a house. We hadn't sold one of the houses yet. I was staying at my wife's house most of the time. And I call her up and say, um, MTV wants me to go for an interview next week. Um, you better call and get cable hooked up at your house because I need to watch this channel day and night for the next seven days before I go in. <laughs> she didn't have cable, I did. Um, so she got hooked up. But I think at this point in my career, because I was you know, more mature naturally at, at 32 than than. 22. And if I went to MTV, I felt it really had to be for the right reasons. And I had to believe I could make a difference and have an impact. 22, I probably would have just taken the job because I would be enamored that MTV wanted me and I could live in New York and it would be great. So I watched the channel. Uh, I found there's this great bookstore. It's the world's biggest bookstores in Portland. It's called Powell's. They have new and used books. I went there one night. Incredible bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. You've been there. So I found a couple old books about MTV. I read them. I tried to do as much homework as I could before I went for the job interview. And what I, I what I went in there saying is like, well, I'm going to be completely honest. And if, if they don't like my opinion of where MTV is and where I think it should go, then you know it's okay. I'm the wrong guy for the job. So I'm in a meeting with uh, Judy McGrath, who's the president. Brian Graydon, who had just come in, and he was this one of the South Park creators and Jeez. I mean, I kind of let him have it in a nice way. <laughs> and I get a call. I fly back to Portland that night. I get a call the next day from Jeff Pollock goes, you really kind of hurt Judy's feelings, but she agrees, oh with, a lot of what, she agrees with a lot of what you <laughs> said. He goes, I think you have a good shot at this. Are you interested? I said, well, yeah, I'm definitely interested to have a conversation. And over the next month or two, it took a while um, going through the whole process, but I did get offered the position. Uh, VP of music programming, I took the job. I mean, what a gigantic position following Andy Schoen, who's obviously a, a legend in the industry and an incredible programmer in his own right. You're back in New York. What you are, from what I can tell, and this is interesting because I didn't know this, but I think you're very competitive and ratings are incredibly important as they should be. And they were, were to me as well. It's certainly a benchmark, but now you've got a national platform uh, television network that you are in, in charge of. And to me, um, that's just a gigantic leap. And so the pressure must have been, I could imagine, immense being as competitive as you are and wanting to come back to New York and showing that you were a success. How are you feeling? Well, I mean, 
the first couple of days, you walk into Times Square, you go up to 1515 Broadway, the 25th floor of my building. You know, I look out my office window and there's Times Square below. I mean, it's mind blowing. Like, look over there. That's where the ball drops. I mean, it's pretty exciting. And, and then after maybe the first week, it's like, okay, let's do something. Sure. It's, it's a big transition coming from radio, even though radio at this point had become big companies. Um, it's still a small team locally that made the decisions. MTV is this big mammoth place, three floors in this tremendous office building and just lots of people and lots of departments and um, kind of slow moving, right? And the decision-making process wasn't like, okay, the GM or the sales manager and I say, hey, we're going to do this. Let's go do it. It's like, there's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of departments to be involved and everything took a lot more time than I was accustomed to. And coming from radio, I found that extremely frustrating. And I've heard that about TV. There wasn't a moment like you had with, uh, we'll go back to Secret Garden. You had that idea and literally within 24 hours, you had it on the air and uh, back in Portland. But to do that in TV is almost ne near impossible, correct? Oh, first of all, I, I, we'd have to actually get clearance and rights to use that you know, audio right. that we pirated from a, a copy of a movie that wasn't commercially <laughs> available. Like, I mean, it, would, it would just never happen. Um, so yeah, everything was much more difficult and a lot more people involved in everything because it's not like you and a production guy doing something or you talking to the DJ and they crack the mic three seconds later and it's out over the air. It's like a lot of planning and preparation and discussion and clearance. And it just, everything takes a lot longer. How long did you end up being at MTV? Um, I stayed about a year. Wasn't my intention when I went there. My wife was uh, a West Coast girl, and she had a, a medical issue with her neck and was having a very difficult time making the transition. And, and frankly, uh, I really missed radio. Radio has always been my first love. And uh, while I was in New York, the guys at Big 105, we'd have lunch every couple of weeks. They still kept trying to hire me, and I kept saying, no, no, no. But uh, it got me closer to Steve Rivers, who was the head of programming at Chancellor at that point. And we would have lunch on occasion. He was in New York quite frequently. And he kept asking me if I'd consider coming back to radio. And uh, one day I finally said, yeah, I think I would, but it's got to be on the West Coast. And this is, you negotiated this at a Ruth Chris, correct? That was, uh, that, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. So I'm talking, yeah. Stephen, and finally, um, this, is, this is funny because I, I actually had taken a job with J-Corps to be their national CHR guy. We were going to move back to Portland. Lori was already back in Portland looking for a home. And my very last night in New York, we put all the stuff on the truck, moving truck. I spent the night on Long Island with my brother. And he's, a, you know, he commutes to the city every day, but he was about an hour, hour and 30 minutes away, one way to get to the city. I get a call from Steve at like 5.30. And I have a flight at 8 a.m. the next morning to Portland. He goes, can you come into Manhattan tonight? I'm like, Steve. It's 5.30. I go, I'm flying out tomorrow morning. I mean, he goes, no, you need to come meet with Jimmy DeCastro and I tonight. I'm like, really? He goes, yes, you have to come in. I go, okay, let me see when the next train is. I'll get into the city. So I go. And I get to Roos Chris in Midtown, which is a steak restaurant, if people don't know. And there's a lot of people from the company there having a dinner. And Steve's like, you know, we got something for you. He goes, it's not going to be in Portland. I know you want to go to Portland. Um, we don't have any stations there. He goes, we don't have any stations in Seattle. He goes, you know, would you consider going to San Francisco? And I said, 
well, yeah, I love San Francisco. What's the job? He goes, you're going to be the day-to-day program director of Wild, but also be the VP of programming for the seven stations in the market. I'm like, well, that's a great job and a great, great market. Kid. It's pretty interesting. So the one question I asked is right away, uh, Michael Martin was the program director at Wild. I go, well, well, what's Michael doing? He goes, he's moving to Los Angeles and he's going to be at the beat. The question that didn't occur for me to ask was, well, has Michael accepted the job? (laughs) (laughs) Right? So anyway, long story short, that night, um, I then meet Jimmy DeCastro. We're standing at the bar. Jimmy does a deal with me on the back of a Ruth's Chris napkin which I still have the napkin saved um, because it was an amazing deal. I was blown away. I fly back to Portland the next morning. Well, missed a step there. I had to take the train back out to Long Island that night at like midnight and we're all drunk. And I remember- (laughs) You're like, this is fantastic. You just got this amazing gig and- uh, And I wanted to tell my wife. Life is good. Yeah, sure. I'm in Penn Station- and, you know, I, I to just give my cell phone back, I was going to wait to port, you know, get to Portland and get another cell phone. So I'm trying to dial a payphone, and I'm drunk and I can't remember. She's staying at her mom's house. I can't really remember the number and I can't get through to her. <laughs> so I get back. You're just like, drunk dialing people randomly right. from a, a, pay, a, exactly. a payphone. Yeah. So I get home at, at, to my brother's house at two in the morning. I'm leaving at six that morning to go to JFK oh. to catch the flight. Lori picks me up at the airport. And we're taking the escalator down to baggage claim. And she goes, oh, yeah, by the way, what happened last night? So I pulled out the napkin. (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, she looks at the numbers and her eyes pop out. She goes, where do they want you to go? And I say, San Francisco. She goes, we can do that. That's awesome. So that had to have been a career highlight. Well, it was a highlight. It got even better than that, though, because um, Michael Martin decided not to go to Los Angeles. Jeez, I never, you know, Michael used to be one of my bosses down in San Diego and I never knew this story. So yeah, please continue so, to tell it. Uh, I call Steve and you know, I'm going, actually, we didn't know that we, they were still trying to get Michael to move. So I was flying back and forth to San Francisco, meeting some people, looking for a house. And then Steve calls one day and goes, listen, uh, Michael's not going to move. Sit tight. We have something better for you. I'm like, okay, my stuff's in storage. My wife's pregnant. Um, oh my where gosh. are we going to be living? We're living at our mother's house in Portland. And the nice thing was my contract started. So I was getting paid for about a month to do nothing except just, wait. Oh, that's great. Okay. So they honored, they yeah. honored the napkin. So Steve calls me one day at like uh seven or eight at night and he goes, Hey, meet me in Denver tomorrow. I'll take the first flight in the morning. We had stations in Denver. So I go to Denver and he goes, I need some help here. The market's a mess. And, and, and long story short, what had happened is as I moved into this role as Steve's right-hand man and basically we just go to markets that were in trouble and and help, which was an amazing job because my background a little bit of rock, but as you heard on this podcast, mostly CHR now I'm working with all kinds of formats that I know nothing about. And seems like you can do it. Just go do great radio. You'll figure it out. But Chancellor, I mean, just to keep this thing moving, it was an amazing experience working in the biggest markets with the best stations and brightest minds in the country. It was like going to graduate radio programming school. And I came out far better because of my time at Chancellor um, than I could have ever imagined or have done doing anything else. So from Chancellor, and now you're responsible for all these stations and you've got your hands in different formats, obviously having a CHR background, but are you 
still a rock guy or do you now really kind of identify yourself as a CHR person or how do you identify Ken? Listen, I, I like classic rock music. I do. Um, I didn't like doing the rock format because I found it too restrictive. Right. There's a certain cool factor. There's certain things you can't do. I mean, the thing with the CHR station with the right positioning on it, you can do just about anything you want. The other thing is, too, I wanted to be the number one radio station. There's very few rock stations that are number one. Right. I want to be sure. <laughs> the top station. I want to be able to do whatever I want and and have a lot of fun. And I think CHR is the format that allows you to do those things. Talk about Citadel. Is that when uh, Fareed is uh, running Citadel? No. Um, so what happened? I left Chancer when it sold to Clear Channel. Decided to take the uh, golden parachute, which I never had before. Um, I had no non-compete because I had a California contract. And as you know, they don't exist in the contracts. That's great. So when I was leaving Chancellor AMFM, the CFO calls me up and goes, listen, they're really pissed that you don't have a non-compete in your contract. And he's back in Boston. So I had to remind Kenny O'Keefe why I didn't have a non-compete, even though I was living in, in Portland. And he goes, will you take a 90-day out? They'll pay you all they owe you, but not work for 90 days. It's like the first of August. I'm like, yeah, it's still summertime. Sure. No problem. Right. So about 30 days in, I get offered this job at Citadel as, as the executive VP of programming, which I felt I was fairly well prepared for with my chancellor experience. And they were really wanting me to work immediately. And I told them I can't work till the first of November. I'll be there the first of November, but I'm not coming a day before because nice. I'm not giving up all that money. Sure. And, uh, they were cool with that. So I went to work um, for Larry Wilson, who was the founder. And, Larry Wilson. And he had started the company about 20 years ago. Um, it was a, kind of a tight-knit family, the guys that have worked together forever. And I just felt it would be a good place to go because in this age of rapid consolidation in the U.S., I just felt Citadel might be one of those companies that kind of continues on its own. Much to my surprise, one day we find out that um, Forceman Little which is a big venture capitalist, bought the company. Um, Larry was out quite quickly. His wife was also very ill at the time. And, and Fareed Suleiman, who was Mel Karmazin's right-hand man at CBS, comes in to run the company. Wow. And in a short amount of time, uh, 10 of the 11 executives were out. The only guy that survived is probably the guy Fareed likes best, the VP of finance. Interesting. So then I was on the beach. And now your career takes a very interesting turn because you go back to what you started doing as an intern and you're into research and you start to work with Bob Lawrence at Pinnacle. Right. Bob was one of the PDs I ever saw in San Francisco at Chancellor. That's how I met Bob. And Guy Zapolian was a partner in Pinnacle. So they call me one day and say, hey, we don't know what you're going to do next, but what do you think about working for us in cultivating an international research business. And Bob had done a lot of that from his days with broadcast architecture. And while the two senior programming jobs at Chancellor and Citadel were my dream jobs, I mean, that's all I ever wanted to do. Sure. I felt like maybe it was time for the next chapter. And I molded over and I accepted the position with Pinnacle to build this international business. Now, do you have much international experience at this time? I know, obviously, you were a foreign exchange student for a semester in London. But other than that, were you mini Mr. Worldwide? Or what was kind of your experience from an international front? Um, 
really nothing in radio. I, I think I had one trip to um, back in the day to uh, Europe too, and RFM was it that? Or no, it was RTL maybe. I can't. Yeah, RTL and Fun Radio with Broadcast Architecture. They invited me to a research meeting in Paris one time. So that was it. I really had no experience. That's, I mean, a huge leap for Bob to take and Guy, Guy to take. And also your confidence is incredibly impressive. I've always been uh, enamored with your ability, um, the way that you deliver, the way that you communicate, and people just really respond to you. And dealing internationally is very difficult. It's been incredibly challenging for me. And I actually owe a lot of our international success to you and some of the introductions that you've made. But the cultural differences differences uh, can be difficult, uh, especially, I think, if you're, um, I guess confidence is definitely part of it, but you just have to really present things in a certain way. And I think you must just naturally have that ability. Or is that something that you kind of learned along the way? Well, I think the first thing that helped me is I'm a programmer, still a programmer at heart that primarily deals and talks to programming people. So we have that automatic bond that, you know, I'm not a sales guy. I'm a programming guy. I speak your language. I've sat in your chair. I've been through some of the experiences that you've been through. Um, So I think that's one piece that helps. Um, I'm also, I I love to travel. I, I love to experience new cultures. Uh, to me, after working in so many U.S. markets in those group roles where, you know, a classic rock station in St. Louis isn't all that much different than one in Portland, right? To now go to a market and the embryonic stages of these markets are all different based on how they evolve. The regulations are different. Some have heavy requirements for domestic music in their mixes. Um, others don't. In some markets, the public broadcasters still have massive shares. Um, so there's a lot more to consider. I mean. And, you know, a lot of our work is in Europe, but we work in other countries as well. But it's not one size fits all. And to me, that's the uh, the really fun part of it. So you learn a lot about research, I take it, from Bob and from Guy and growing international, which you obviously, I'm sure, had a lot of success doing because you've done so well with P1, which we'll get into here in a moment. What else do you learn during this period working with guys like uh, like Bob? Well, I mean, a couple of things too. One, you know, Bob provided a lot of music research for us at Citadel. So I was quite familiar with the core product we were selling at the time um, because I was a customer. So it was very easy to go talk to people with confidence about it because I never saw myself as a sales guy, right? And I could never sell something I wasn't really into or believed in, but I totally believed in the way they were doing library testing at the time. And we also had a call-out product at that time, which was very early. Right, the music was just starting at the same time, and that was a low entry point uh, as far as price goes. So it was a great way to open a relationship with very little investment from the other side to show them this new tool and our value and hopefully leverage that into a bigger relationship. So after doing, and you were with Bob for seven years, and then you moved on to work with the guys at SparkNet, correct? Yes. Um, so a couple things happened. If you remember around 09, 10, I mean, we we're in a deep, deep recession. Uh, the U.S. business for Pinnacle got crushed. International was still holding up very well. And uh, things got so bad in the U.S., Bob, uh, let me and some other people go. Um, so what do I do now, right? It's like uh, 
So I really started uh, the first iteration of my own research company at that point in conjunction with SparkNet, which was Gary Wall in the States and Pat Vaughn in Canada. Uh, we did a joint venture to, uh, to start what became P1 Research. And then later, when we took full control back, it became the P1 Media Group. And going out now on your own, because this is the first time you've got your own, really your own company, because you were a partner in that business, uh, took a lot of guts. And actually, I think this is all around the same time that Benstown came to be. Were you, was there anxiety there? What kind of gave you the, um, uh, the guts to do it? You know what? There was a, a lot less anxiety than when I started with Pinnacle because I had been doing this for seven, eight years. I had relationships in a lot of places. In fact, when I called some of my customers to tell them I was no longer with Pinnacle, uh, they were very surprised that I didn't own a piece of the company. They thought I did because they thought I worked there like I owned it. Uh, oh, interesting. I never told anybody I did. So they go, Ken, we don't know what you're going to do, but we hope you do research and we'll be your first customer. So when a handful of guys said that, it gave me total confidence to, uh, to move forward. Sure. And so now you've got your own business. We're starting to come out of the recession and things start to really just take off for you. There was some ramp up period. I mean, we didn't have a, a big successful research business overnight, even though we had some initial clients. We're still reeling from the economic recovery of the recession. Uh, and at the same token, the connection with SparkNet, uh, the creators and owners of the Jack FM brand, they wanted to work with me internationally to help develop the Jack brand internationally, which is a tough thing to do. But we did get it on in some markets like Moscow and St. Petersburg and uh, a bunch of cities in the UK. And I was quite fascinated with Jack from the very first time I heard it in Vancouver, uh, which was around 2003. So to me, just being a guy that loves radio to get my fingers on that and figure out what made that thing tick, it was, uh, was worth it in itself. Sure. No, just a phenomenal brand. And, you know, our friend uh, actually who just called, my phone was uh, vibrating, but our mutual friend, Gary Wall, I've learned a tremendous amount uh, from him. And uh, Kevin, who's sitting across uh, the way from me, uh, works on all the imaging with uh, Gary uh, for the, uh, the network, for the Jack FM network. Tell me a, a little bit about your involvement with Jack and uh, what you did with, uh, with that internationally. Well, the first one we got on the air was in Oxford in the UK. Uh, they had a new license and uh, they were looking for something new and different. And uh, it been actually, they were a great client, still have the format today. And they've done an amazing job uh, putting the UK flair into the Jack DNA and have been extremely successful. In fact, they have a Jack 2 and a Jack 3 format now. Wow. And a Union Jack DAB channel, which only focuses on British artists. Um, so that was a lot of fun. The Russia experience was more challenging um, for a lot of different reasons, but still uh, a great experience. How did you broker the deal in Russia? What was that like? Uh, very interesting. They, they called one day to inquire about it. And uh, they said, are you going to be in Europe anytime soon? I think I was flying to Vienna the next day. I was in the States. And I get off the plane in Vienna at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I meet him at the hotel across the street, right? And we basically did a, a deal at this restaurant. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Uh, you've been incredibly instrumental and uh, we, we have a great uh, partnership uh, with Europa Plus because of you in, uh, in Moscow. So your, uh, your, your relationships internationally are incredible and you stand, I think the Ken Benson brand really stands for quality and creativity. And it's a, a very impressive, uh, impressive career that you've had. Now, 
you end up leaving or SparkNet kind of disbands in its in that iteration. And I know it still exists, but you then go out on your own from there with P1. That's right. Um, the two partners in SparkNet split. And at that point, it allowed us to buy our share of the company whole and, and go out on our own. So it's really for us from a customer standpoint, it was really no change and evolution change, a slight alteration to the name, but uh, still P1 Media Group. And now you've been uh, running that on its own for uh, pretty much, what, the last five years or so? Yeah. That's great. And how's it going? How are things impacting you in regards to coronavirus? Well, you know, our industry has been hit really hard. As you know, you pick up the trades every day. You're reading about people losing jobs and layoffs and advertising revenue just plummeting. It's a tough time. I mean, it varies by company. It varies by market. It varies by country. But, you know, no one's immune from a loss of revenue. And research and consulting and marketing are usually the things that are the quick and easy things to cut, right? It's a lot. Sure. You got to pay your rent. You got to pay the electric to keep the transmitter on. You have to pay some people to actually go there and still run it. Um, so, yeah, it certainly impacted our business. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not going out of business anytime soon. Um, but, yeah, are we going to be making less for a while? Yes, we are. So is that uh, disappointing? Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. we're not alone. And uh, we'll get through it. We're in a uh, very similar situation, so I uh, I completely understand, and uh, I can say that we've worked with you for now pretty much since the beginning. You've helped us with the VO fifty list, and uh, you just recently did uh, uh, some work for us. Uh, just a, a incredible organization that you have, and uh, really impressed everything that you've created in your career is just absolutely, uh, absolutely remarkable uh, to go from literally a, a transistor radio that your, your father gave you uh, to running MTV to uh, being the uh, a VP of programming for Chancellor and Citadel to having your own research company. I mean, you've really, uh, you've run the gamut and it's uh, incredibly impressive and you just have been a, a great person uh, for the industry as well. Uh, some of the people that you've mentored that we didn't have a ton of time, but Lara Scott, um, uh, 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 Tommy Austin, um, a lot of people that worked with you have gone on to go on, you have phenomenal uh, careers. Uh, isn't, um, uh, Tommy is a big uh, programming, head of programming now for Intercom, correct? Uh, no, I think iHeart. Oh, iHeart, sorry. Yeah. So he's doing really well. Uh, Lara's uh, here in LA doing really well. Um, who are some of the others uh, that you've uh, mentored along the way that you're proud of their accomplishments? Uh, Chet Buchanan did a second uh, stint with us at KKRZ. He was one of the original DJs there. We brought him back. Of course, he's had this phenomenal career in Las Vegas at KLUC doing mornings and that massive toy drive. Everybody hears so much about every December. Um, he was a great one. We talked about Lara Scott, who's now middays at K-Earth. She started with me when she was 21 as a part-timer. Wow. In Portland? Yep. Yep. She was actually doing, quick story, she was doing oldies uh, part-time overnight at the oldies station, which is actually in the building next door to us. And one of our sales promotion guys goes, hey, you, you got to talk to this girl, Larry. I think she's really good. And in just a matter of a couple months, I put her on part-time, full-time overnights. And I, I fired the number one night guy to put her on nights because I just felt she would take us further. And she did. She was amazing. She's great. We worked together at, uh, when I was at uh, clear channel here, iHeart. but Larry's Larry's a great talent. And then Dave styles, who's doing afternoons at, uh, my one Oh four, three in LA. He was a part-timer for me. Sure. Um, who else? Uh, Eric Murphy, who you may know, he was a music director and afternoon guy at Z. Then he yeah. 
to be a record guy at RCA. Now he's got this amazing company called Pop to Life um, that does experiential marketing that Con Nast bought from him a couple of years ago. And I'm sure they paid him a fortune. Of course, it was undisclosed, but oh, good for um, him. And he's still involved with that, but super creative guy. Um, man, there's so many people. I mentioned Dan Clark earlier. There's guys like Steve Rivers and David Lebo that had big influences on me. Uh, Tracy Johnson, Bill Richards, uh, two consultants that were really instrumental in my career. And I want to give a shout out to one GM, Clint Sly, who was there for probably the last three years of uh, my Z100 stint and by far the best GM I ever worked for. Totally committed in every way, shape or form. And I think without him, we wouldn't have achieved the success that the team, you know, made happen together. He was just an amazing mentor and manager and taught me a lot. Let's leave off with one great story from Z100. And I know there are several, and we talked obviously about Jerry Maguire, but uh, fill me in on one other great just promotion or something that you did there uh, uh, during your time. Okay, a couple come to mind. I can do a lot of Tanya Harding stories, but uh, I just want to give a quick Michael Jackson story. Please. One of our morning guys did great, uh, lots of great impressions, but did an amazing Bill Clinton impression. And Michael Jackson was shooting a commercial, not the Pepsi commercial in the 80s, but something else in the 90s and, and again caught fire and was in a hospital in New York City. So the morning guy that does Clinton calls up the New York City hospital the morning after as Bill Clinton and actually gets through to Michael Jackson. Oh, my and gosh. Does a two minute call with Michael Jackson. We were the only media in the world to talk to Michael Jackson <laughs> at this point. So my phone rings at 630 in the morning. It's the morning guys. I mean, there's, you could just tell it was real because they were so excited that they actually got through to Michael Jackson and asking me if they can air it. Because you, know, you, can't, you, know, you know the rules, right? You're not allowed to put somebody on the air without informing them first. You're recording them, which of course would be a right. bit. So I made the executive call that we're going to roll with this, even though it was, you know, broke FCC rules. And sure. it was an amazing call. We put it on the air. And uh, again, it was just something they did for the morning show. But then we decided to make this clip available. You know, we're on entertainment tonight, that night. We're everywhere because we had the only interview in the world with Michael Jackson. Oh, my God. But that's the kind of success we had. We just did things that were good for the station. And so many times they blow up into something so much bigger than we ever anticipated going in. Can we find that audio, Ken? I have that audio. Yeah, we have a Z100 box set that was made. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to wrap this up and then we're going to play that audio so everyone can hear that. Cause I've never heard it and I would, I would love to do it. We could have a whole podcast just on uh, Z100 and everything that you did there. Just uh, unbelievable radio station. Yeah, maybe that is in an incredible story. Part two, one day we'll tell some Tanya Harding stories. Cause I got to be honest with all the things we did. And then once I saw the movie, I actually felt bad about some of the things we did, but <laughs> we did some amazing things together and a lot of good things together too, but towards the end, not necessarily so good. Ken Benson, thank you so much uh, for your time. Just uh, an, an amazing career. Uh, thank you for everything that you've done for Benstown and uh, being a mentor to me and uh, our friendship. Uh, I include you amongst a very close circle of uh, great friends and uh, people that have uh, been so helpful to us. And uh, I thank you for that and really greatly appreciate your time. And uh, thank you for sharing all your stories with us. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for that ride in the jalopy many, many years ago from the San Diego airport, where it all started between us. So, Public affairs. Good morning, public affairs. This is White House operator number 64. Please stand by for the president of the United States. 
Uh, hello, uh, this is President Clinton. Uh, is there any chance you could put me in touch with uh, a representative for Michael Jackson? Um, uh, hold on just a moment, please. Hello, can I help you? Uh, hello, this is President Clinton. I was wanting to know if I could speak with one of Michael Jackson's representatives. I'd like to know if I could uh, place a call to his room and uh, wish him a speedy recovery. Okay, um, if you will hold on. Um, actually, this is the downtown campus, and he's at our uptown division, so I have to get them on the line and then transfer you over there. Is there a chance you could give me the number I could call, or does it have to be transferred through you? Do we know a number there? Okay, if you can hold on, I'll transfer you over to the north division. Thank you very much. Okay, hold on. Hello? Uh, hello? President, we're in the process of, of getting a line for you, so if you hold on just one more moment. All right, thank okay, you very thank much. thank you. Uh, hello? Uh, I, I can barely hear you. Is there any chance you can speak up? This is President Clinton. Uh, someone was supposed to be transferring me. Hello. Uh, Michael? Yes. Michael, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm doing better. Thank you for calling. Michael, I, I just wanted you to know that my, my heart goes out to you. I know uh, the big special is planned on HBO this weekend, and I was planning on, on watching it. Uh, how, how are you feeling? You, are you doing all right? Yes, my energy is getting better, but uh, I have problems with my stomach and dizziness. Well, Michael, I know you're not feeling very well, so I'll just keep it brief. I, I hope you have a speedy recovery. And uh, I don't know if you uh, heard last night, but on the uh, Billboard Music Awards, everyone was uh, showing lots of support. And I hope that you'll feel better very, very soon. Very kind of you to call. All right. And I appreciate it very much. All right, Michael. Thank you very much. Say hi to your lovely family. I will. I'll sell, uh, say hi to Hillary and Chelsea. She loves your new album, by the way. She's got it. Thank you. Speedy recovery, Michael. Thank you very much for taking my call. Thank you. You rest up, champ. Looking forward to seeing you sing again real soon. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.